Well, excellent singing this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Uh, it's been a joy for me over the years to be able to teach through and preach through 1 Corinthians on a few occasions. I think I've had the privilege of teaching through it over 35, close to 40 times and teaching it in Bible college classrooms and seminaries. Uh, But I've only had the privilege of preaching through it maybe two or three times, and I never made it this far in the book. Uh, So it's been a joy to be able to to work through some of these texts and to to, to preach them to you and to proclaim them to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is extremely important. It's important because it emphasizes love, the true nature and value of love in the church. Uh, But the sermon this morning and the text this morning is also important because it will uh, talk about three gifts that seem to have uh, stopped. Tongues, prophecy, and the spiritual gift of knowledge. This morning, uh, as I work through the material, there'll be some teaching that will have to take place. And this is an important text for our church because it's, to me, one of the, the most important texts in all the Bible about gifts like tongues and prophecy and when we should expect them to be uh, functioning and when we would have expected them to have stopped. And so I encourage you to pay close attention. Uh, You might pull out the handout I've prepared for you. And this will be the ones I don't plan on coming back to 1 Corinthians 13 for probably 20 years or so. So uh, this is our chance to pay close attention and try to understand this text well. Well, it was our great privilege last week to spend time in 1 Corinthians 13 in the first half of this love chapter. Near the end of chapter 12, Paul says that he is going to show them a more excellent way. And then we learn in chapter 13 that the more excellent way involves love. Uh, Last week, in the first half of the chapter, Paul described both the beauty and the essence of love. And our study uh, focused on what Paul was accomplishing, and we trace the contours of this text in its original setting before we made application uh, to our own lives. And as we work through verses 1 through 7, I argued that there were two basic arguments that Paul was making uh, about love. In verses 1 through 3, Paul was basically telling the Corinthian believers that love was greater than any of their spiritual gifts. If you remember, as we worked through those verses, we, we made the point that all, all gifts of the Spirit are like zeros without love. And love is like placing a one in front of the zeros. Love gives worth to any of the gifts of the Spirit. In verses 4 through 7, uh, we argued that uh, Paul is saying that love is the opposite of how you've been behaving. Remember, there's these 15 characteristics of love in verses 4 through 7. 15 verbs, and many of them are negative. And as Paul's going through a list of things that love will not do, what became obvious, hopefully, to you as well, is that earlier in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul had already said that the Corinthians were doing some of the things that love shouldn't do. So that as the Corinthians hear 1 Corinthians 13 read out loud, I think they would grow more and more uncomfortable because of their own culpability. They were guilty. And that should become obvious to them. This leads us to one last point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13 about the more excellent way. And that point is made in verses 8 through 13. 
I think the point can be seen very clearly in the first three words. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul says, Love never fails. With these three words, Paul begins a complex argument about the enduring nature of love. If I were to describe it as I did the other ones, I would describe it with this one sentence. Love continues beyond this life into the age to come. Love never fails. Look down in your Bible at verse 8. We'll read through this text. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In these verses, Paul's going to emphasize the permanence or the eternality of love by describing it and comparing it to things that are not permanent. He's going to talk about the permanence of love by describing things that aren't. Have you ever purchased something before because it had a lifetime warranty? Or do something like that? It moved you to, to, to send your purchase in one direction or another. So the way these lifetime warranties go is the manufacturer... He guarantees, right, if, if anything breaks down about the object that you're purchasing throughout your whole lifetime, doesn't matter what it is, they'll replace it or they'll give you a new one. That's a lifetime guarantee. I've actually heard of some people buying something because they had a lifetime guarantee and then the manufacturer itself closing down about three or four years later. So I think it's good to ask, you know, whose lifetime are we talking about, mine or the company's? Well, regardless, as you're making purchases like this, you compare your, this product to another product to see how long you think it's going to last. So, for instance, not too long ago, I bought some tires for our vehicle, and I was looking at the tires, and they give, like, thousands of miles you can drive with this, and I was doing the math. If I buy this tire, it's two years. This, this tire, it's three years. If you're putting a roof on the house, you get a 15-year warranty or, like, a lifetime. Right? I don't know if there's a lifetime warranty. A long warranty, a 30-year-plus warranty warranty on the roof. Sometimes that moves us to purchase a thing that's more expensive because we think it's going to last longer. Those were both men illustrations, women, I don't know, a mixer or a blender or something, you know, in your house. And, you know, this one's got a six-year warranty. This one's got a 20-year warranty, though. I think I'll buy that one. As we come to this text, Paul contrasts love with two groups of spiritual things that will cease in verses 8 through 13. So I've got two sections in verses 8 through 13. If you're going to understand this complex text, you, you need to understand that Paul's contrasting love to two groups of things. So first of all, in your notes, Paul talks about the survival of love and the elimination of what I'll call right now revelatory gifts in verses 8 through 11. The uh, survival of tongues and the elimination of some spiritual gifts that are soon to cease. So he gets right at it in verse 8. And he talks about the enduring nature of love. He says it never ends or never fails. 
One commentator described the importance of this passage really well. His name is Gordon Fee. Fee said, love is the way that is beyond comparison because in contrast to the grace gifts, which function within the framework of our present existence only, love or agape characterizes our existence, and listen to what Fee says, both now and forever. Love is both for now and forever. In other words, love is permanently important. Its importance is in this world, on this planet, and in the world to come. The word that's that's translated ends here at the very beginning of of chapter 8 is a word that would normally be translated false. And often it just talks about something falling to the ground or falling in some way or another. Uh, Here I think that Paul is using it to describe something that would, would never become invalid. It's used, I think, in the same way in Luke chapter 16, verse 17, when Jesus is talking about the word of God or the law, and he says, not one jot or one tittle will fall. It will never fail. It will not become invalid until the passing of the heavens and the earth. In this text, he's saying love is valuable on earth and it will be in heaven as well. It never ends. But Paul follows up that brief explanation of of love and the eternality of love with a lengthy discussion of three gifts that will not last. Verses 8, middle of verse 8 through verse 11. Look down in your Bible again at verse 8 in the middle of the verse. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, prophecy in part, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In these verses, Paul declares that there are three gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, that will not last. Now, to better understand what's going on in this passage, in these verses, I'd encourage you to pay close attention. I want to ask a few preliminary questions. I mean, I love coming to the text of Scripture and asking questions, I can see, you know, can I get these questions answered in the Scripture? And I think that the two questions we start with are extremely important if you're going to know what this text is all about. The first question we ask in this text is, why are there only three gifts mentioned here? Why does he target three gifts? I mean, the, gift, the list of gifts so far that he's been going through, if you've been here in the study, you see he's got like a list of eight, a list of twelve. He's got these bigger list of gifts. But now he's only got a, a list of three. While there, there are different reasons or ways to answer that, it's my belief that he does that because he's, he's expecting to make a contrast between another group of three later on in the text. So you look down in your Bible at verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Okay, Paul's going to be making a contrast between two groups of threes. And actually, as I've studied the Apostle Paul in his writing, he does this a lot of times. He loves groups of three. Okay, for some reason. They're called triads. Not a tripod, triads. He loves groups of three. So, for instance, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when he's saying that Jesus Christ has thoroughly defeated death, he taunts death with a threefold taunt. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? You hear it? Three taunts of death from the scriptures. 
In Romans 9 through 11, he had a lot to say, right, about Israel and Gentiles being infused, or the church being infused into the people of God. And as he closes, he makes three exclamations. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. He follows that up with three questions, and then he goes to three statements. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Paul loves groups of three. He does in 2 Corinthians 6 as well. Here, it seems that he's, he's expecting a contrast between tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, and faith, love, and hope. So he's going to further his argument by using groups of three. That, that leads us to a second question I think that's important to ask, and that is, why these three gifts? Okay, so I can see why there are three gifts, but why tongues, prophecy, and knowledge? In other words, is there something common about these gifts that might explain why they're in the list? I mean, because you just read it, you see it, but we need to ask, you know, why, why these ones? Well, what do we know about the gifts? We've already looked at them a little bit. We know they're all spiritual gifts. His point might be about all spiritual gifts in general. We know as well that these gifts all tend to be more miraculous in the spiritual gifts, right? Tongues, prophecy, knowledge. But what I want to suggest, maybe most importantly, is that each one of these gifts are similar in that they are gifts of revelation. Gifts of revelation. That is, they involve spoken revelation, new revelation from God to men. And women. So they're gifts of revelation. That's why I call them revelatory gifts. I want you to keep that in mind. They're gifts of revelation. Keep that in mind for later. Okay, now let's look at the text again. Having answered those two questions, Paul makes three points, verses 8 through 10, in this text. First, in verse 8, he says, These gifts will cease or will pass away. Look in your Bible again at verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. These three gifts are going to cease or pass away. I think it's best to see those two verbs, cease and pass away, as roughly synonymous. There's a lot of dispute about that, but I think they're roughly synonymous. There's not a lot of difference between them. Okay, grammatically. Uh, So consequently, I think he's saying these gifts are going to come to an end at a similar time. At a similar time, or at the same time. That leads us to verse 9. The second point he makes about these gifts is these gifts at best are only partial. Look in your Bible, verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. I think what Paul is teaching here is that maybe one of the reasons why gifts like knowledge and prophecy are going to stop in the near future is because they involve only partial revelation. They are in part, the text says. So Paul implies here in verse 9 that they will pass away because they are only partial. They're not complete. I think that these gifts, gifts like tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, were designed for the church in its infancy stage to bring them to a certain level of understanding. But these gifts never involve complete revelation or full revelation. As a matter of fact, go back to chapter 8 for a second in your Bible. And look with me at verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Remember, this is a whole different section, but he talks about knowledge here. In a very interesting way, look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know, Paul, that all of us possess knowledge. That might be a Corinthian slogan. We all have knowledge. Remember when we went through this, I said he might be talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge. Okay, so it may be that the Corinthians were arguing, we all know better when it comes to meat offered to idols, and we have this gift of knowledge. Notice what Paul says. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I mean, already in chapter 8, he was contrasting love and knowledge. He says, your knowledge inflates you, but love builds other people up. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know. I mean, what's his critique there in verse 2 in your Bible? His critique is even if you think you've got it all figured out, let's say you have the gift, the spiritual gift of knowledge, and you think you understand it, the truth is you don't really know things as you really think they they are or the way they are. So Paul's point here is be careful about the gift of knowledge because the gift of knowledge is only partial. It's incomplete. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In verse 9 then, I think Paul's saying these gifts, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge are at best only partial. They, They will soon pass away. That leads us to a third point that Paul makes about them in verse 10. You look down in your Bible at verse 10. So this is pretty easy so far, right? We've got these three gifts. Two of them are only partial, they're incomplete, but then verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So the third point that Paul makes is tongues, prophecy, and knowledge will pass away when the perfect occurs. Okay, can we agree on that? Can you shake your head one way or another? Yeah, okay, when the perfect occurs. Okay, but the question, of course, is, what is, what is the perfect? What, what is he even describing here? Well, there's much debate about it. And uh, this is where we'll just take a moment to teach, okay? And then I'm going to make a case for what I, what I think is right. Most of the opinions about what the perfect is, because this is important, right? When the perfect happens, the partial gifts will be done. Most views of the perfect actually come in one of two channels. Okay, one or two views. Two possible explanations are normally given for this. The first view uh, that I espoused for several years as a student of the scriptures um, refers to the perfect as the completion of scripture or the canonization of scripture. Okay, so is the perfect when we got the last words of the book of Revelation or whatever book was written last in the New Testament scripture? Or was it when when it was codified and collected for the church in the canonization of scripture? Okay, so these I'm treating as basically the same idea. This view was suggested years ago by a Princeton theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield, and it's been very common, very common in our circles. Okay, to explain that the perfect is the scripture. It's the revelation of scripture. So when the complete and perfect revelation of scripture was finished or collected, these gifts, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, gifts like that were no longer necessary for the church. Okay, so the way you argue this is, you know, God, God has already given us the perfect gold standard of his revelation to man, so we don't need the partial revelation anymore. 
Okay? The strength of this view, in my opinion, might be the way it explains the metaphor illustration, verse 11. Look down in your Bible at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish things. Verse 11 is just an illustration by Paul to help us understand what the perfect is. And he's describing here the church as a child growing into infancy. It seems to be a gradual process. It, It could be a picture. It could be a picture of how the scriptures were given or collected for the church. So that they give up childish things. Okay, the childish things would then be things like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. So when we get the Bible or when it's codified for us, then we understand this. That's to me, is a strength of the view. To me, one of the weaknesses potentially could be verse 12. There's another illustration in verse 12. Look down in your Bible at verse 12. He says, for, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Here the illustration is uh, not seeing, you know, Paul, as he's writing the Corinthians, not seeing things clearly, but there's coming a time when we're going to see face to face. Okay, and the way this view would take it would be face to face would be not someone's face to another person's face, but just be a metaphor for something like clearly. Now we see darkly, but then... When the perfect happens, we're going to see face-to-face or clearly. So the completion of Scripture, the canonization of Scripture, takes takes the church from muddied understanding to clear understanding. That's one way to take it, that the perfect would be the Scriptures. The second way you could take this passage is that it refers to uh, our encounter with Christ at his second coming. Or something eternal in heaven. Okay, and I'm actually kind of summarizing a bunch of different uh, views into this one. But uh, some people believe that the perfect is the, the second coming of Jesus. Uh, this view is, is quite popular today. Okay, matter of fact, I, I, would, I would think as I've studied this, I, I think maybe 90% of evangelical writers on this passage hold this view. Okay, so there are good reasons to hold the view. Some conservative people, conservative preachers like John MacArthur, holds this view. The weakness of this view might be its explanation of the child becoming an adult. Because when we see Jesus, it's not like a gradual thing, is it? It's like in a moment, you know, at the twinkling of an eye, and so on. So, The weakness may be uh, the way it would explain the illustration verse 11, but I think the strength of this view is the way it explains the illustration verse 12. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Okay, so the way that this view would, would, would take verse 12 is my face or your face to Christ's face. And it's at that point where we will know things clearly. We'll know them at a level. We'll know like we're known by God. Okay, so to me, there's some strengths of that idea as well. What I want to suggest to you, though, is a third option. In my opinion, this third option best handles all the language in verses 8 through 13. I just want to make a brief case for this, and then we'll continue working through the text. Okay, uh, my opinion, the best option here is to identify the perfect as the maturity of the church. The maturity. But when, you could translate, but when maturity comes... 
or when the mature time comes. But when the mature time comes, the partial things will be done away with. So Paul's suggesting that the universal church will grow mature enough in its theological foundations and understandings that these gifts of divine revelation, partial gifts of divine revelation, will no longer be necessary. Okay, now, let me give you a few reasons why I hold this, okay? We're doing a little deep plowing here. It's going to last for about another minute, so don't worry, okay? But this is, this is an important text, and like I said, I'll be back to it in about 22 years or so. So, Okay, so as you look at this text, there are a few reasons why I think you should translate it, but when maturity comes, okay? The first reason is because every time the word for perfect, or maturity, is used in 1 Corinthians, it's used and normally translated as maturity. So look back in your Bible at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6 with me. This word is only used three times in 1 Corinthians. You saw one in chapter 13. Let me show you another one. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6, the exact same word is used in the ESV translators translated as mature. Says verse 6, yet among the mature ones, we do impart wisdom. There they, they've, they've, they've decided to take this word and to translate it as maturity. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Then go over to 1 Corinthians 14 for just a second, to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Look down in your Bibles at verse 20. It's a little bit later in the section on spiritual gifts. In verse 20, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Same word. Be mature people, or other translations, be men. Don't be children, don't be stuck in infancy, but become mature. So when Paul uses the word perfect in the other two places in 1 Corinthians, it's normally translated as maturity. Another reason I would hold this is because uh, when this word is used in other texts about spiritual gifts it means maturity. Okay, so there are only a few passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts, and I want you to look at one of them with me. Go to Ephesians 4 for a moment. So flip to Ephesians 4 in your Bible. And I won't really comment on this because I'm running out of time in some ways, but in Ephesians 4, I'll just read through it, and I want you to see that the word for perfect is translated mature in this text as well. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So he gave us all these gifts to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's the same word there, to mature manhood. But I don't think he's talking about the return of Christ here. There's nothing in this text about the return of Christ. You keep reading, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we would grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I mean, does this sound like 1 Corinthians? Like all this children stuff going on, all this body talk, all this growing love. Within the text, there's nothing about the return of the Lord here, but there is a description of the gifts being given to the church so they come to a place where they function as mature, as a mature manhood. Describing the condition, I believe, of the universal church. We go back to 1 Corinthians 13 for a moment. I'll give you just one last reason why I hold this. Again, I think this is fairly important. I'm giving you three. I've got a bunch. Just giving you three. Finally, this view is best because it explains, I believe, the two metaphors in verses 11 and 12 well. It handles both of them. So, for instance, look with me at the illustration in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave away or I gave up childish ways. In this verse, Paul describes the church as a child becoming a man. Paul pictures the infancy of the universal church, and he has them gradually reaching adulthood or manhood where they will give up their childish ways. There are many different ways you could illustrate that, right, that concept. But childish ways here probably speaks of the church reliance on gifts like tongues, prophecy, and knowledge that include only impartial revelation. So to me, as I'm just reading through the text and trying to make sense out of it, it seems that Paul imagines a day when the church would no longer stress or perhaps even use gifts like these in the assembly when they've reached mature manhood. I think it's it's reasonable to argue this way. Basically, I'm arguing that when God used spoken revelation and came to a certain point, that there'd be no longer need for spoken revelation anymore. This is the way we argue about the scripture and written revelation. We basically say, you know, God inspired through the Holy Spirit uh, the the words of men as they were writing these things down. There came a place where uh, he was done doing that. And it was collected into a book. And so now we have God's perfect revelation, written revelation in a book. So if someone comes along and he, someone comes along and he says, I'm going to write something new and we're going to put it in the Bible. What do we say to that? Like, you know, you're crazy. No, this is complete. It's, it's thorough. We'd argue the same way about spoken revelation, that God used the gifts of these prophets and tongue speakers and, and those who had the gift of a word of knowledge, and they used their gifts over and over and over again until there came to a place where there just wasn't a need for them anymore. And consequently, I would suggest that these divine gifts of revelation ceased early in the history of the church. Once the church was built up on a solid foundation through the ministry of the apostles and prophets, through the pastors and teachers using their gifts, through the complete revelation of the word of God be given as well, that God brought the church to a place where they would not need impartial gifts of revelation anymore. And I think that church history confirms this. If you look at church history and you do a, you do a study, it, you know, all church historians realize and recognize that we're not aware of anyone who spoke in tongues, for instance, for over 1,600 years. So in the annals of church history, no one spoke in tongues for 1,600 years that we can find from about three or 400 A.D. until this recent century that we just went through. 1,600 years of no tongue speaking. The same could be true of prophets, prophecy. 
Okay, there are church fathers who would lament the fact that why are people not speaking in prophetic utterances anymore? I think 1 Corinthians 13 might explain that for us. Regardless, Paul has love never failing. Love never ends, but tongues, prophecy, and knowledge will pass away. Let's make one other comparison here, though. So as we looked at the text, we've looked at verses 8 through 11. We'll do this next one quickly. The second point that Paul makes is he will describe the survival of love and the fulfillment of Christian virtues. So he's going to compare love with Christian virtues in verses 12 and 13. Look, look in your Bible at verse 13 first. He says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here Paul combines the virtues of faith, hope, and love together, but then says that love is greater or the greatest. The question, of course, that we would ask at this point is, why is love greater than hope or faith? And what in the world is going on here? I think the best answer to this is love is greater because love is eternal. You've probably heard preaching or teaching on this before. Love is eternal. Remember what we said at the beginning, it never ends. It's for both now in the church as we live and forever. Whereas what what many people have suggested over the years is that faith becomes sight when we get to heaven. Faith important for the moment, important for now, but when we get to heaven, it becomes sight and we experience it. And hope, hope becomes realized. There's a text in Romans 8 you could write down that that says we do not hope for what we do not see. And and describes that as, what we see, it describes that as not being hope at all. So I think what he's doing in verse 13 is he's, he's just returning to the point he made in verse 8. Love never ends. And it's greater than faith and hope because they are fulfilled when we get to heaven, whereas love continues on into that realm. And this is what I think Paul's doing in his illustration in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul speaks about seeing in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And I want to suggest that Paul is describing in verse 12 another phase of maturity that will happen to the church when we see Jesus. Okay, so I've got a little drawing, I think, that will help you hopefully understand the point I'm trying to make. The key premise of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is love. This text is all about love. You see it repeated over and over again. That's the bullseye. That's what we should be targeting. But in chapter 13, verse 13, he surrounds or includes love in a little broader group. He says, faith, hope, and love by these three, but the greatest of these is love. And uh, then beyond that, in verse 8, he talked about another group of three, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. What I think is going on in the text is Paul is talking about two phases of maturity that will happen to the universal church. There'll come a time... When, as verse 11 describes, there'll come a time when things like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will be done away with. They'll be no longer necessary. Okay, when, when you reach mature manhood. This I describe as progressive maturity. It's going to happen like a child becoming an adult, becoming a man. But then there's also coming a time in the future when we see Christ. When we see him face to face. Where another phase of maturity will occur for the church and there'll be one thing that continues on. And that is love. So the most important part of this text is love. 
Is love the center of your aspirations this morning? There's a lot of stuff going on in the text. But if we don't get this, then we miss it. Love is eternal. Since love is eternal, don't you think that you should really emphasize it and develop it in your relationships? Perhaps God has showed you in the last week or two that you need to be more loving, that you need to involve yourself in meaningful acts of love for another in the assembly. If love is eternal, we should be doing it now. Perhaps for you that that means this week cooking a meal or writing an encouraging card or sending a text or selflessly deciding, deciding to serve a family in the assembly. Why? Well, because love and acts of love continue on and have permanent relevance in this world. Or perhaps we've gone the whole way through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you have a relationship that is tense with someone else in the assembly. It may be that even last week you were convicted about it in some way or another. And so my challenge to you is, you know, if love has value both for now and forever, don't you think you should work on loving even those people that you feel have wronged you or have done something to discourage you? By God's grace, we need to be a church that loves. You know, as we was reading through that text that Pastor James read through, to see the strong words of John. You remember what he said at the end of that text, 1 John 3? If we hate our brother, what, what was the basic point? If we hate our brother, eternal life is not in us. We don't have eternal life. This is a significant thing. It may be that there are some within the assembly who've developed hatred for another brother or sister in the room. That is not a characteristic at all of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We must be willing to develop love. Love's guarantee, his warranty is forever. It's of eternal significance. So we need to be a church that loves well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for being able to work through this text. It, Lord, it was in some ways uh, a text that's at times difficult to understand. What we take away from it, Lord, is though that you're contrasting love with things that won't last. These gifts of divine revelation that we can be so drawn to, the Corinthians can be so drawn to, they won't last. Even the cardinal Christian virtues, faith and hope, when compared to love, are less significant, perhaps, because love is eternal. Lord, may we see the value of love this morning. May we have your grace to be able to evaluate our own lives, our own relationships. And for the brother or sister in the room today who has hatred in their heart for another person, another believer, I pray that you would show them that that is inconsistent with the work of God in their life. 
Lord, we pray that as we've taken two weeks to look at 1 Corinthians 13, that you, by your spirit and with your grace, would cultivate a true spirit of love in our assembly. And Lord, we pray that you would do this not so that people would identify us, us as the most loving church in all of the Hampton Roads, but Lord, we pray that you would do this so that we might represent Christ and people would be drawn to him. We pray that we would be committed to love so that our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are struggling in sins and iniquities and failures of various sorts will be built up to the place where they can stand on their own feet by the power of the Spirit and through the edification they experience at our hands. Lord, may we love like that in the body. Lord, may it not be true of us that as a church that we just show up. We just show up and we listen to the preacher. We sing a song. We sing songs about love. But we're not willing to love throughout the week. Lord, as Paul is demonstrating this text very clearly, love is not just a thought. It's just not warm wishes that we have for someone. Love acts. And so, Lord, if we're not acting out of love to other believers in the assembly, I pray that you would... Reveal that to us through your spirit, and you would convict us and encourage us to act on love. We thank you for these timeless truths in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.